Hello and welcome to another episode of Christ in Context, a podcast dedicated to finding Christ in all of Scripture and using all of Scripture to navigate life. My name is Kevin and I am your host. Today we are going to be talking about why we should study the Bible. Uh, right now it is Sunday night, it's just past 10.30, so um, please forgive me if I'm a little tired or sound tired or uh, stammering in my wording. Uh, It's been a long week. I've been working nine-hour shifts for four days in a row, and it's just, it's been a long week. But I've got a couple days off, so hopefully I'll get ahead of my recording and not be recording last minute. (laughs) Uh, But so yeah, today we're going to be talking about why we should study the Bible. Uh, There, I mean, we can go about this a lot of ways. The reason why we're talking about this specifically is because this podcast, as I've mentioned in the intro, is that we are dedicated to studying Scripture. We're, we really want to find Christ in all of Scripture because I believe that that is the most faithful way to read Scripture. Um, I don't think it's some type of eisegetical, uh, you know, some some type of attack on scripture. It's, I don't, I think it's the most faithful way to read scripture. Some might say differently, but, uh, this is what I'm convicted of. And so I wanted to lay out some, some groundwork and a little bit of a basis for why I am convinced of this. Um, why I believe that you should be convinced of this. Um, I'm not going to lay out a whole list of, you know, six reasons why you should study the Bible in depth, but I will probably give two reasons that you'll, you'll probably catch it as I'm going, but if you don't catch it, uh, basically it is that the Bible is authoritative and, um, it's where God has clearly spoken and both of those go together. So if the Bible is is authoritative, we ought to listen to it. And if God has spoken, we ought to listen to what God has said, especially as Christians who claim to be submitting to God. It's it's kind of an absurd thing to say that you want to submit to God and not listen to where he has clearly spoken. That's our, our basis and our the, the very basic core of our faith that we find, we base everything out of scripture. So just a few quick things that I would like to say before I start reading some scriptures about, uh, you know, proving the authority. And I I don't want this to, to come off as circular reasoning that, that sometimes is the attack that, uh, people have on, on my understanding of scripture, but, I, I want to point out that it's if I if I say that I that the word of God, where God has spoken, if I say God is my ultimate authority, and He has clearly spoken in a book or in our case sixty six books, then I ought to use that authority that I claim the highest authority. If if that's the highest authority, then I ought to use that as my reasoning for all other aspects of life. So uh, if, if one believes that 
science is their ultimate authority, then they're going to use uh, the scientific method and other type of scientific reasoning in everything that they do. If one believes that rationalism or logic is the basis for all morality and for all truth, then they ought to be consistent and use logic and morality and uh, rationalism in their own understanding of rationalism. And so, just a quick side note. So, getting into it, um, I want to quote Vadi Bakum. And I think, you know, there might have been other people who have said this, but I first heard this from Vadi Bakum in a sermon, or it might have been a lecture where he was explaining why he believes the Bible. Uh, he was talking about... Um, some students that he's had as a professor that they go off to college, or I, I think he was talking about as a pastor. Um, there were, you know, kids that go off to college and they, they're kind of unsure about what to say about why they believe in the Bible. Cause they go to secular schools and the secular professors, you know, are, the way he describes it is really funny. You know, they salivate waiting for uh, the Christian to say, I, I believe the Bible, and then he gives some goofy reasons, but they're typical reasons that students give that aren't, you know, they're not well articulated yet. You know, they might say, well, it's how I grew up. It's what I grew up believing. They might say, well, it's changed my life. Uh, I forget what the third reason is, but he says, quote, I believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other white eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. And he does say it that fast in the sermon, which is why I was trying to read it that quickly. Um, it's a lot to take in, but essentially what he's saying is that there is around 40 authors of the canonical texts, all spanning within about 1,500 years, they all wrote historic events as eyewitnesses or um, based off of other eyewitnesses who told the authors, um, and they claim specific prophecies, which later other authors said, hey, these prophecies were fulfilled. And one of my favorite things, which I don't think proves um, the authority of the Bible, but I think it's just absolutely fascinating that the text of at least the New Testament is the most historically reliable collection of writings that we have. We have close to 5,000 fragments, and I could be getting the data wrong, but the, uh, the manuscripts that we have you know, around 5,000 manuscripts is significantly higher than any other historical event at all. Uh, recently, I, I actually had a coworker tell me that he didn't even believe that the person of Jesus existed. And I was like, look, whoa, 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 hold on. I know that you are an atheist, but let's back it up because for any event, specifically that of the life of Jesus for any event to have 5,000 documents ish, uh, claiming the same thing. That's pretty reliable. 
Uh, you know, we have other people. I think there's like 10 writings from Plato or something like that. I, I could be getting the numbers wrong. I didn't look that up, but we still believe that Plato existed. And there was, you know, we've got about 10 writings or something. Uh, the Iliad and Odyssey, I think, only have 20-ish. I, again, I'm, I'm pulling these out of the back of my head, and I could be way, way off. So I'm, I'm just going to stop playing with that. So um, I would like to spend a lot of time talking about the differences of other religious texts and why the Bible is the most authoritative and the most reliable, and I just don't have time for that. Hopefully, we'll be able to get into that in a later series. I would think it would be absolutely fascinating to dissect each religious text, uh, at least like, you know, maybe the top five religions of the world, um, dissect their texts, at least in part, and compare it to the Bible and its authority. Um, So before we start talking about actually studying the Bible, I would like to lay out that I do believe that the Bible is inspired, it is inerrant, and it is infallible. So I want to define these terms before I use them or before you hear hear me use it later on in further episodes or later on in this episode. But what I mean by inspiration specifically is the plenary inspiration view of scripture, which uh, a lot of times when, at least even at the university that I'm at, when I say that I believe that every word of the Bible is inspired, they think of like a robot, like God just sat the per- the author down and then downloaded a bunch of <laughs> words and the the person was just like automatically writing they weren't thinking they were just you know writing stuff and they're like oh i don't want to i don't want to think of god just taking over a person like that that's just cruel and like and i think there's a lot of other issues with that because uh you know when we read the text of the bible there's all kinds of nuances and uses of language between the authors. And so that's one reason why I believe in the plenary view of inspiration. The plenary view of inspiration is that all parties, so plenary is an older word that isn't really used a whole lot in our modern English, but it's an older word just meaning everyone, like all parties. Um, so all parties, both God and the author, were fully present during the writing of Scripture. So, um, you know, say Isaiah, for example, when Isaiah was writing, uh, recording the 66 chapters that we have, he was using hit like, you know, God didn't take away any of his experiences, any of his life events, any of his memories. God had actually prepared all of history in a, in a sense to prepare Isaiah for the very moment of writing out what he had written. And the same goes with every author of every book of scripture. Um, so it's it's a really beautiful thing where, where God is partnering with the person. He's using their experiences. He's using uh, their memories, their desires, their passions. You know, a, a person might, an author of scripture might have been really amped up, really upset about, uh, you know, the sin of Israel 
or um, in the New Testament, some you know Paul might have been really angry at the Galatians. He might have been full of love for the Thessalonians, and that shaped how each author wrote what they wrote. So with inerrancy, I believe that the Bible has been spoken by God, and it does not have error in any of its original words or meaning. And I need to be very specific when I say original words, because we don't have the original copies. It's likely that many of the original copies of our texts were burned or have been lost or hidden somewhere that we just haven't found yet. Um, but the original meaning, and we, I mean, we can get really, really, really close to the original words because of how many copies of the copies that we have where we can line them up and kind of compare and say, okay, well, that wording is a little different. That wording is really different. We're not going to use that wording and uh, we can get pretty close to the original words. The meaning I believe is pretty, pretty darn close to the original. If I think it's identical to the original Uh, There's even, I heard a debate between James White and I think he was debating a Muslim and he (laughs) quoted Bart Ehrman, which was really funny. He never really quotes Bart Ehrman, but he said, you know, even Bart Ehrman would say that if someone asked him, you know, what's the message of the Bible or what's the message of the New Testament? He would say, well, the message of it is that there was a guy named Jesus who died and rose from the dead and claimed to be the son of God. And so what's, what's really neat is Bart Ehrman is, uh, I mean, he's a critic, he's an atheist. He doesn't believe that the Bible is authoritative. He doesn't believe in God, but even he will acknowledge that we have the original meaning and the original understanding of what the apostles were trying to communicate with their original audience. And lastly, infallibility, because um, it has been spoken by God, because um, it is inerrant. um, The word of God does not fail in its purpose. So in like without and fail, fail, um, it, it, the word of God does not fail. So what is the purpose? That brings up a really important question. And I think that's kind of where we're going to start to go. What is the purpose of the word of God? And in short, it is to effectively communicate redemption. It's God's primary vessel of communicating redemption to all people. And not all people will accept it or receive it, but it is the the full story of God's sovereign plan of redemption. So before we get into that, I want to take a step back and just kind of ask the question, what does the Bible say about itself? Is it really self-authenticating? And I want to define that term, self-authenticating. Sometimes we use it and we just want to say, we just want to quote verses that specifically say, uh, you know, Second Timothy three sixteen that uh, the Bible that the Word of God is breathed out, or that the Scriptures are breathed out by God. 
Um, but there's more to the actual phrase self-authenticating, which is, you know, first and foremost, what it literally says, but there's a lot more to it. It's the general assumptions of the authors, the thematic claims that are made from Genesis to Revelation. It's the uh, historical and prophetic claims about God and about redemption. There, you know, there's so much more to uh, like a prophecy being fulfilled authenticates. It makes the Bible authentic. Um, so going back to, you know, what is the purpose of the Bible? I thought it would be funny to talk about an acronym that I've heard before, which is that the Bible stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. And now when I first heard that, I think I was in high school and at first glance when you, you know, it's not that big of a deal, I guess. But as I've gotten older and read the Bible more and studied it more, I realized that that is probably the worst thing that you can say about the Bible. If it's just basic instructions before leaving earth, then the logical conclusion of that is escapism and legalism. So, you know, if we're saying that it's just some basic instructions, then, you know, you just got to be legalistic about it. You got to follow what the Bible says and that's it. Don't go too far off. Just follow what the law says. And before leaving earth, you know, we just, we're only here for a short blip, but we're going to leave earth. And then we're going to get to our, our true paradise. We're going to get to where we really need to be, which I don't think that's helpful at all because in revelation and elsewhere, there's a promise of a new heaven and a new earth. So our promise is that we would actually remain on earth. Uh, it'll be a new earth. It'll be created differently. It'll function differently, but it's, I mean, it's still earth. So, you know, we don't want to get too caught up in trying to escape. Um, I wanted to quote Cornelius Van Til, who's a great apologist of the Christian faith. Um, I've been reading his series in defense of the faith, specifically volume one, which is uh, the doctrine of scripture. And so he says that the scripture binds us not only to the past, but also to the living Lord in heaven who determined the past as well as the present and the future. Furthermore, he also says only God knows God and only God can tell us about God, which at that point he was paraphrasing uh, Herman Bavinck, who's a systematic theologian. But I think that that last quote is important as we're diving into our understanding of scripture, that if we are going to claim God as our authority and we want to hear what he says, then we must submit that only God can tell us about God. Um, he, because he is the creator and we are the creation, then we need because he is already higher than us, we can't, uh, ace, we can't ascend higher and, you know, hear what, and just figure out what he 
is, who he is, what he thinks. We are dependent on him speaking down to us and reaching down and telling us about himself. So, with all of that being said, I want to spend some time reading a lot of scripture um, to set the framework of the basic and fundamental understanding of the authors of scripture. So first, I'm going to read some passages about how Jesus himself um, thought of the word of God. And at this time, he's specifically thinking of the Old Testament, which it's so common that Christians nowadays nowadays will um, just kind of want to disregard the Old Testament because it's old and there's uh, monotonous laws and they don't always apply to us and it's hard to understand. So, eh, I don't really, I don't really care to spend that much time. I just want to read the gospels and the epistles where, you know, it's right to the point. It really gets me the, you know, that's the good stuff. But really Jesus says in Matthew five seventeen. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And this is on the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus had just finished the Beatitudes, and he start. You know, he says, "Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets." So he is admitting, "Hey, uh, all these laws that I, all you know, this sermon that I'm about to give you, yeah, none of this is to get rid of." Uh, any of the Old Testament laws, but actually it's about me and I'm fulfilling all of these. In John seventeen seventeen, Jesus is praying for his followers, specifically his 12 that are, you know, have been immediately following him. But he also says, uh, I think it might even be the next verse. It could be a couple verses later. I don't remember off the top of my head, but he says, um, Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. So while he's praying for us, his followers, he's asking that the Father would sanctify us. He would cause us to be holy through his truth. And what does he define as truth? He says, your word is truth. And some people might try to be uh, facetious and say, oh, well, you know, what if... Uh, you know, what if he's saying that his spoken, you know, the father's spoken word is truth? What if, you know, what the, the times where God has just spoken out of the clouds of heaven? Well, any time that that has happened, it's been recorded in the Bible. So uh, it's kind of a moot point to try to say that. When, when Jesus is talking about that, it's pretty clear he's referring to the written word that we have that has been consistent throughout the centuries. Another point where Jesus makes a really, really profound statement is in John 5, verses 37 to 40. He's correcting the Pharisees, and he's, um, you know, saying that he's pointing out that they don't believe, but it's not because they don't know the scriptures but it's because they don't know the Father that has written the scriptures. So he says, The Father who sent me has testified of me. 
You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him who sent me. Uh, him whom he sent, sorry. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. You are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. So here's what's really important as we're thinking about studying the scriptures. Jesus makes a distinction between searching the scriptures and trying to find eternal life in them or searching the scriptures in order to understand who our Messiah is and in our Messiah we have eternal life. So it's a small distinction, but it's an important distinction. Um, let's see, I'm looking at my notes. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, another important point that, that I think is kind of underrated is when Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by the devil, where, uh, what's, what's overrated, I think is just the idea that Jesus himself was tempted um, but what the specific point that I think is a little bit underrated is the way that Jesus responds to the devil. He could have just very easily said, no, I'm God. Go away. Um, and you know, maybe I think there is a purpose in that, you know, he had to fulfill all righteousness. He had to overcome the temptation, but what's really important is he doesn't come up with a new teaching. He doesn't come up with um, a new commandment to the devil. He doesn't, you know, there's nothing new that he does, but instead he says, it is written, and then follows it up with a quote from the Hebrew Bible. Part of that is because he was being tempted. You know, Satan would quote the Hebrew Bible, and I think that's in part because Satan knows that all of the Hebrew Bible is about Jesus. And so when he's quoting that, the the force of it is, hey, you know that this is about you. You know that this is true. But Jesus being supreme quotes scripture back and lays out how we ought to deal with our own temptations by saying, actually, it is written. Um and, you know, God has clearly spoken. So, other New Testament writers, it's important to see, you know, they were taught either directly by Jesus or they were taught by a person who was um, directly taught by Jesus. Um, so, in 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, this is probably the clearest passage that we have about what the scripture is. Paul says that all scripture is inspired by God. And when he says that, um, my NASB says inspired by God. I think some like the ESV translate it as breathed out by God. Um, but it's literally a word theanustas, which is God spirit or God breath. Um, it's, it's literally God breathed. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, 
so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And here is our purpose of studying scripture, that we would be taught, that we would be corrected, that we would be rebuked, that we would be uh, trained in righteousness, because where else are we going to find righteousness other than from God himself? And all of that is not just for nothing, but it's for this very specific purpose so that the person of God, the man of God, would be made not would be made adequate and or uh, complete and equipped for every good work, not just most good works, not just some good works, but every good work. Hebrews 4:12 says that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Here we get this picture where the scripture, when we read the scripture, it's a spiritual encounter where uh, the Holy Spirit has not only, um, you know, taught the person who wrote it, has not only been engaged in the person who wrote the scripture, but the Holy Spirit helps us in our reading of scripture where we would be challenged and, uh, you know, almost judged by the scripture. Uh, and we hear the word judge and it's kind of a bad word, but it might actually be a good thing that uh, we would read something and be convicted and repent. Second Peter 1, 20 and 21 says, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Here's another really, really clear passage about the New Testament author's understanding of Scripture. Uh, I, and a connection that I th- would like to make, which is just my opinion, I don't know if it's actually backed up by like scholarly research, but um, it's really common that the... Uh, New Testament writers use the law and the prophets or the prophets and the law to refer to the Hebrew Bible. So there's one specific point where Jesus says that all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. So he says that even the law prophesied until John. That's Matthew eleven thirteen, by the way. So when Peter is saying that he's speaking of the prophecy, that no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but they were all moved by the Holy Spirit. I don't think that he's just talking about the prophecies of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, the minor prophets, etc. But I, I think actually that Peter's talking about the whole Hebrew Bible. Another important point is where Paul uses a similar formula that Jesus used while he was out in the wilderness. Um, so in first Corinthians 15, which is actually, I believe the, we have a fragment from first Corinthians 15, which is like the oldest manuscript of the new Testament. Um, and so Paul is explaining the gospel, just the very core of it. And he says, for it is written or as it is written, you know, he says, that Jesus was crucified, as it is written, 
he was buried and raised from the dead as it is written, and he is seated at the right hand of God as it is written. I'm paraphrasing. Um, But again, the proof, the authority, and the understanding of reality itself is based upon the word of God, the written authoritative word of God. I'm going to move a little bit quicker and start um, just reading some Old Testament passages as well so that we're not, you know, um, it's important that we do understand how the New Testament writers viewed the Old Testament, but I also think it's important that we understand how the Old Testament writers viewed the Old Testament. So uh, just this is a short um, survey. I think I probably could have gone a lot more in depth and pulled out a ton of more scriptures, but we, I mean, we just don't have the time for it. So Joshua one, seven and eight says, this is God speaking to Joshua. He says, only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law, which Moses, my servant commanded you do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but You shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. And then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. What's interesting about this is that God is giving this command to Joshua where, you know, you might contend that, well, Joshua was a leader and this text doesn't directly apply to every person because not every person is in a place of leadership. Well, what is being said is that the leader of Israel would be one who rules based on the law of God and that those members of Israel would submit to that leader who rules by the law of God. So it's implicit that we ourselves, whether in a leadership position or not, Uh, You know, we might put Christ as the, you know, Joshua being the typological uh, foreshadowing of Christ. And so if we are going to submit to Christ, we're going to submit to his law. If the Israelites are going to submit to Joshua, they're going to submit to the law that's been given to him. There's also really, really similar language in 2 Kings 2, 2 and 3, where um, David is commissioning Solomon right before he dies uh, 2 Kings 18, 5, and 6 is talking about Hezekiah, and it explains that he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him, for he clung to the Lord. And how did he do that? Well, it's answered. He says, that, well, the text says, he did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. 2 Kings 23-25 is talking about Josiah, and it says, which this pattern is just a way of kind of like glorifying a king, like making him look really good. Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses. Nor did any like him arise after him. So I I said that this pattern is kind of a way of glorifying the the king, but 
and and I say that just to be cautious that we don't say, well, look, there's a contradiction because it said that Hezekiah was the greatest king, and then it said that Joshua or Josiah was the greatest king. Well, we do see a little bit of a difference in nuance that he clung to the Lord. Josiah clung to the Lord with all his heart and soul and might, according to the law of Moses. Um, but there's a little bit of a difference with Hezekiah where he didn't depart from following him, or, but he kept his commandments. So I think the emphasis is on Josiah really, really, really keeping the law of Moses. But I don't want to focus too much on the difference between those passages. I want to focus on the idea that the way that Josiah followed the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might was by following the law of Moses. And when we say according to the law of Moses, we might also understand that as um, our understanding of how to follow the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength is by comparing what we are doing to the law of Moses. Or what, at least in this context, what Josiah was doing to the law of Moses. So then we have a couple verses from Isaiah where he says that he's saying that this is what God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, no, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. That's Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. And then uh, a few verses later, he says, so my word, which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So both of these get this picture across that God's ways are higher. And as I, as I had said in quoting Cornelius Van Til, that only God can tell us about God. That's because his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our our thoughts. We can't think in the way that God thinks. So we need him to reveal himself, to speak to us. And when he says that his word will be accomplished, it won't return to him empty. This is where we see that it's important that we understand scripture as the fulfillment, as Christ fulfilling it. When we understand that, the whole Old Testament and the whole New Testament are effective, they're uh, authoritative because they have not returned to God empty. Um, let's see, Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. forever. Psalm 1, 1 and 2. How blessed is the man who does not walk, who, yeah, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Um, Psalm 19, 7 through 10. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The command the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. 
They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Psalm 119, 41 and 42 say, May your loving kindness also come to me, O Lord, your salvation, according to your word. So I will have an answer for him who reproaches me, for I trust in your word. Uh, in other words, it is sufficient. Psalm one nineteen seventy one and 72. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. So the point of quoting all of those passages, I know it might have been a lot to get through, but we did it. Uh, the point of all of that is to really bring to light that both the Old and the New Testaments, not just the New Testament, but both the Old and the New, every author, even though I didn't quote every author, but every author of the Bible has high esteem for the Word of God. They don't view it as just something that might be helpful every now and then when we're going through tough times. It's not just some cool proverbial statements, but it's truly the actual word of God, and it should transform our lives. It should transform how we think. Why should it transform how we think? Because when we are saturated in the word of God, then we think in a different way than we used to. We think of things differently. You know, we might say the prayer, God, let my heart desire the things that your heart desires. Well, the first way that we can, you know, try to attack that is through, um, is, is through reading the Bible and really hearing, um, and saturating ourselves in what God has said. Um, another point that I just briefly want to bring up is this is as I'm wrapping things up, Romans 1, 16 and 17 say, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in the righteousness of God, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And this is the last verse that I want to quote because, uh, as I've already laid out, that Christ is the fulfillment of Scripture, and if this is true, then the gospel is in all of scripture. Now, I want to be really, really clear about this. The explicit gospel is not going to be found in all places, but, so, you know, what I mean by that, it sounded like I just totally contradicted myself, but what I mean by that is when we read a passage of scripture, say from the Old Testament, it might not explicitly say, that Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem, uh, teach a group of people. Uh, he's going to have 12 disciples. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be buried for three days. He's going to rise from the dead, and then he's going to be seated at the right hand of God. Every passage of scripture just cannot contain all of that. But if Jesus is the fulfillment of all scripture, then when we read scripture, we should be looking for Christ. Um, you know, like in David and Goliath, if we read that, 
we would see David, we, which we'll study this in depth in a few more episodes in the future. Um, but we would see David as a picture, a foreshadowing of Jesus. We don't see ourselves as David. So, um, when we see Christ in every point of scripture, in one way or another, in shadows or for or foreshadowing or types and images, then it is through that that we can connect it to the gospel in some way or another. So, all of that is to say that we are to study the Bible because it is the primary means by which we can clearly and definitively know God. Um, we can know the things he desires, the things that he doesn't desire. Um, we can uh, base our morality clearly and definitively off of his word. Uh, we can have a clear definition of truth. And that's all that I really have to say. I hope that that was helpful and encourages you to really get excited to just jump in and start studying the Bible. I love studying the Bible. Um, I'm really excited to continue and dive deeper. Join me next week as we talk about biblical theology.